Good morning. Will you guys turn in your Bibles to Matthew 1 with me? You'll see in your bulletins that Matthew chapter 1, I've got down that we're going to read and preach uh, verses 1 through 17. This is a genealogy. I'm not going to read all that. I probably should punish you guys and make you listen to that, but it would really just be punishing myself because I'd be up here fumbling through the words. So what we're going to do is I'm reading Matthew 1 verses 1 through like 7 and a half. And then I'm going to read verse 17 and then I'm going to pray for us and we'll get started. This is the word of the Lord. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray together. Father, wow, Um, these genealogies, they seem dense and they seem unapproachable. Um, So this morning we need you to be present. So will you send your spirit that you would guard me from saying anything unhelpful or confusing or erroneous? And will you also send our spirit to help us understand your word and give us hearts to really be transformed by it. In your name we pray. Amen. I know that genealogies are not typically the kind of Bible passages that generate excitement and imagination and intrigue. I know that. We typically think of them as sort of dusty and dull, distant names on a page with nothing to go with them. If you read through your Bible... Uh, just generally like in devotions or if you just read through it, when you come to these kind of passages, at least me, generally I kind of just, I see, when I see any begots or names or this guy was his son, I move on because they seem so distant. And names are a funny thing. Their meaning, think about a name, the meaning of a name is only specific to one human being. Unless the human being a name refers to is known, there's no range of associations the reader can attach to it. Now, I know that gets really philosophical really quick, but let me try to illustrate it. My son, Sully, is five, and so he just started going to school, and he's like a zealous and voracious learner. He's getting really excited about reading and writing. And so most of our evenings, like the afternoon, when I get home from work in the evening, he's home from school. What he wants to do is spell, okay? So he says, Dad, teach me to spell these words. And he gets out his Etch-A-Sketch or his notebook, and he drops them down. You know, he puts them down. He's getting his letters right, and we're proud of him. I can tell you a really, one really, really interesting thing about those moments every afternoon is, I think, I, I think it's no exaggeration to say that at least 98% of the time, I say this without equivocation, at least 98% of the time, 
Sully wants to spell a name. Okay? Dad, teach me how to spell will. Teach me how to spell Moravia. Teach me how to spell Liam. Teach me how to spell so-and-so. Now that, that, for a dad, at least for me, maybe you're more patient than I am, but that drives me up the wall. Because when you come to me and you ask me how to spell Diari, I'm going to stumble. I'm going to mess it up, right? And Sully's going to go to school and ask Diari, how do you spell your name? And Diari's going to punk me as a four-year-old. And so now I look like a bad speller. But I'm not a bad speller. I'm a really good speller. I want a spelling bee in elementary school. You can ask my mom. You want to know how to spell acumen or ameliorate or adumbrate? I'm your man. Just don't ask me how to spell Peyton because I don't, know what, I don't know whether his mom or dad wanted an A or an E to come after the P. I don't know. So it makes me look dumb over and over again. And I tell Sully, let's think of other words to spell. Why names? Why is it always names? But of course, Sully says, Dad, you protest way too much, right? He says, who cares about learning how to spell brother? Teach me how to spell Jesse. Who cares if I know how to spell the word friend? Teach me how to spell the word Owen. And you know what that is? That's a five-year-old spurning abstractions in favor of something very, very material. It's a shot across the bow in favor of a story, and it's a banner waved in rejection against kind of lame duck propositions and words that for Sully have no association. See, Sully knows what every single person that's ever thumbed their nose at a genealogy forgot, and that is all of these dry, dusty, hard-to-pronounce names have a massive narrative behind them. Sully knows what everybody else forgot. And that's that these are people that lived and breathed and moved and had their being in the world. And just to kind of say something about them is nothing compared to saying their actual names. So the first 17 verses of Matthew 1, I think, present names in the same manner. They Think about this. Matthew could take a deep breath and give you a few sentences about Solomon's birth and the illicit sort of behavior that happens in Solomon's birth. But if you know know the story and he just utters the name Uriah, doesn't that flood your mind immediately with a whole sense of emotion that reminds you of betrayal and murder and adultery in a way that a few kind of bleak, cheesy sentences that articulate the narrative would never be able to do. That's what I think Matthew does in Matthew 1. That's why genealogies matter. So Matthew 1, 1 through 17, this is us this morning. So you think about us for our sermon series. We're going to be in Matthew. Let's just, maybe you can think this morning, think about it this way. That Matthew 1, 1 through 17 begins Advent by telling a story sordid and wild that causes our hearts to long for Jesus' coming, to long for the Son of God. What we want to do is just take the curtain on a few of these names and just peek behind it just a little bit and see what's there. We can't examine every name, but we want to get some of them. So what Matthew does here I think is kind of ingenious and subtle. He gives you Jesus by telling you who his ancestors were. Now we don't think about family 
by and large, in the same way that the ancients did. But they did think about that. They believed that you truly knew a man by where he was coming from. And so Matthew, in his gospel, is no doubt, by the time we get to the end of it, by the time you got to the end of it, end of it if you read it, you would know Jesus as the Son of God. But in Matthew 1, he wants to show you Jesus as the Son of Man. So here's what we're going to do this morning. The first verse of Matthew 1 just talks about Jesus as the son of David and the son of Abraham. We'll say a few words about that, and then I'm just going to say a few words about the rest of the names. Why the son of David? Why is this so important? Do you guys notice how many times we sing something about David and Advent? So many of the stories that you find in the Gospels acknowledge Jesus to be the son of David. Now, why is that significant? Why, why would that be important? Well, the obvious answer is, the one that maybe immediately comes to your mind, is just simply to show that Jesus comes from a kingly line. Everybody knows that David was a king. And so for Jesus to be the son of David means means that he comes as a royal king, someone who's in charge. He's the heir of all of Israel's kings, especially the godly ones, Solomon, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, Josiah, and so on. So he's a king. But I think there's more to it than that. I wonder if there's more to saying that Jesus is the son of David than just simply acknowledging his royalty. Maybe you remember one of the things that God promised to, well, I'll read it. God promised to David in 2 Samuel 7 this. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. My love will never be taken away from him. What was David's rule and reign known by? If you had to take a moment and just articulate something where you said, well, I don't know, what is, what, like, a, like a headline. What would the headline be after the end of David's reign? Well, I think it would be, this is a guy that united our people. Before David came and Saul was in charge, things were fragmented. They were in disarray. Israel felt bereft. They didn't have a king that that longed to restore them. They were in a position of disunity and heartache. But David came and he healed them. He restored them. He brought back together unity in a place where there was only division. And so to think about David's reign is to think about a healer. The king that was going to be the son of David that was coming, who we hear as Jesus, would be a king that would bring real healing. Israel was surrounded by leeches at the time of Jesus that were sucking the life and health right out of them and they needed a king from David's line that would banish those leeches and restore Israel to help. I don't know if you guys remember the uh, Return of the King, the book, the third part of the Lord of the Rings. And you remember there's a moment in Return of the King where Mary and Faramir and the others have been wounded. And they get into a spot and they meet a nurse. And Aragorn's there. And what does the nurse say? They're, I assume, expecting the nurse to heal them. But the nurse says what? She says, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And so as the, in the return of the king, the unfolding of Aragorn's reign is coming, it is given a more full announcement by simply acknowledging that the true king that was coming would be a healer. Somebody that restored people. 
And that's exactly what Jesus does over and over and over again. The time you hear Jesus called, the times you hear Jesus called Son of David in the Gospels almost always have some kind of healing associated with them. In Matthew 9, early in Jesus' ministry, two blind men cry out in Galilee, have mercy on a son of David. Now, virtually on the next page, Jesus travels and meets a Canaanite woman that says the same thing. Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. And so this phrase is mentioned over and over and over again in the context of Jesus' restorative and healing work and ministry. So what does it mean to be the son of David? What does it mean for Jesus to be great David's greater son? Is it not that, doesn't it mean that God moved into the neighborhood and is doing the restorative work that Israel so much longed for, but that Jesus was going to do it in a way that wasn't like top down? It wasn't going to be restoration through banishing all of Israel's enemies out of the land. It was going to be an organic restoration that happened at the personal level. That when Jesus leaves and goes away, he's going to give his church the mission to carry on. Be where you are and at the ground level do the work of restoration. That's one of the reasons we said this last week, why Jesus has to go away. Because in his absence, he can fill all things. He's no longer locally circumscribed. Now he's everywhere in the presence of the church all over the globe. And his work of healing can go anywhere the church can go. It's not located in Galilee anymore. Jesus was being the God of Israel and restoring his people. And so... This baby that's coming that we're waiting for in Advent, the son of David is a gentle restorer and he appeals primarily to the weak and infirm. It's true that Jesus will appeal to the spiritually weak and spiritually infirm, but he also appeals to the physically weak and the physically infirm. And so we're going to see Jesus born in a manger in a few weeks and notice that being the son of David is very different from being an ordinary king. So that's son of David. Also the son of Abraham. Why, why the son of Abraham? Why is that significant? Well, it's telling, I think, that Matthew highlights Jesus being the son of David before he highlights, if you look at verse 1, you see, before he says son of Abraham, he says son of David. So why is that? Well, the kingly thing is significant, but the Abraham thing is significant. And we've said this the last few weeks. We said this when we read about Abraham a few months ago. Abraham was going to be the one through whom all the nations on earth are going to be blessed. Jesus acts as a continuation of Abraham's work. If you remember here in the very first verse of the book of Matthew, Jesus is acknowledged to be the son of Abraham. And in one of its last verses, what does Jesus command the church to do? Go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus is the apprentice to Abraham, even though he came before Abraham. You remember what Jesus said before? Abraham was, I am. And that's true. He existed before the foundation of the world, in eternity past, always with the Father. But he's Abraham's apprentice in the sense that he's taking on the trade of rescuing the nations. If we thought after we heard that Jesus was the son of David, that that meant he was only the king of ethnic Israel, we learn now that we're wrong, and by saying that Jesus is the son of Abraham is simply to say that Jesus was the king of everyone. All right, well, what about the rest of the names? 
that's all maybe somewhat self-explanatory, but then you've got the litany, right? You've got all of these other names, and how are they significant? Well, we can't do it all, but let's say at least this. One thing, one observation I do want to mention is there's four women here. Did you guys notice that? I read all four of them. There's four women in this genealogy, which at the time, scholars fight over whether that's weird or not. But maybe it's weird, maybe it's not. It's definitely a patriarchal society. But it seems to me to be significant that only four are mentioned, right? If they're not all mentioned, why just four and what makes these four significant? So here they are. First, Tamar. Now, I'm not going to tell the whole sordid story of Tamar, but essentially what you have with her is in the book of Genesis, she tricks her father-in-law Judah by playing the prostitute and lodges herself in the line of Judah always now recorded in biblical history in Matthew 1 because of that trickery. Second, you have Rahab, who is the prostitute who hid Joshua's spies as Joshua and the people of Israel prepared to enter into the promised land. Then there's Ruth, who's actually a Moabite, who is never censured for it in Ruth chapter 3 and 4, but whose behavior... Uh, towards Boaz may have been a little bit seductive. And then you have, finally, Bathsheba, who's stolen from Uriah and bore David's famous son, Solomon. Now, what's the common thread? What's the story here? What's significant about these women? You can say, maybe, as one commentator I read said in very typical British understatement, that their stories do not fit comfortably into traditional patterns of sexual morality. You could say that. But there's another way to look at it, too, that doesn't highlight their illicit lives. Because that's not what's emphasized here. It's not even emphasized in the stories that these people, that these women, when these women are actually told originally, these aren't things that are highlighted there. I think the names of these women say something amazing, and it's not mainly related to that. I think it's, it's continuing the point that we made about Abraham. Matthew is preparing the reader for the fact that Jesus was going to draw all men to himself. He was going to do much more than what was expected. And he was going to expand his kingdom to include Gentiles. Matthew muddies Jesus' genealogy intentionally. He tells it with the checkered elements hanging out for all the world to see because he wanted to portray Jesus surely as God made man but as a pure God who was made man and because he was made man was united to a hairy bloodline one that was checkered with all different sorts of people and even if it's not being emphasized about the the women's illicit behavior the men in this list are way worse The wickedest men in the history of Israel are Jesus' ancestors. I didn't read these, but Ahaz is in here. Totally wicked. Manasseh, a bane on the, the pedigree of Israel from long ago. So you've got a people, it's, even if that's not what's true with the women, it's no doubt that Jesus comes into the world through a line of sinful men. To wear human flesh. For God to become man and wear human flesh meant that Jesus began to wear and bear the sins of the world even at birth. There's no moment in the history of Jesus' life where He wasn't a light coming into a dark place. Even in Mary's womb, He was a light coming into a dark place.
Now, do you guys remember uh, Juliet Capulet's early uh, uh, monologue that she gave to try to persuade Romeo that their love could sort of rise over and against their uh, family struggles? You remember Juliet says, "'Tis but thy name that is my enemy.'" Thou art thyself, though not a Montague. What's Montague? It's nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man. Oh, be some other name. What's in a name? That which we call a rose would by any other name smell just as sweet. Now that's beautiful. And it's brilliant, right? And there's a lot of truth to it. But there's also... It's like it's only a half-truth. It's not completely true. And that's how the tragedy of Romeo and Juliet unfurls. There is more to a name. If there wasn't, their love could have gone on forever endlessly, and you wouldn't have a cast of dead characters when the curtain drops. There's more to a name. It's beautiful, but it's not entirely right. We don't live in a vacuum. And so Jesus' genealogy matters because He came from a line of kings, but it wasn't a pure-blooded line. And it was certainly a line of sinners. And so because Jesus' genealogy was a line of sinners, He prepares us room. Don't you feel like this is a family that you could fit into? Isn't this a family that doesn't intimidate you even a little bit? Isn't this a family with all of the intrigue and sin and depravity and terrible situations that you feel comfortable with? Can you be excited to celebrate Advent this year, waiting for the coming of a king out of this line of men? Are you ready to celebrate great David's greater son, your older brother? Jesus' genealogy matters because it's your own. This is your people. This is your genealogy. And it tells a story that says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God sent His Son to be somebody else's son in a long line of sons so that you could be His son. You're not his enemy, you're his son. And the word of God has been born in human flesh. And we, have, as God's people, have been swept up into that. Because God has united himself to humanity in the flesh of human man, you can be united to the divine. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your union with us. And we ask that you would give us peace this Advent season, even as it's a season of eagerly awaiting the coming of your Son, and even as it's a season of real longing. We love you, Lord, and we pray that you would protect us during this time and that you would fill our hearts with joy and worship. In your name, amen.